0: it's friday february 16th 2024 from peach fish productions it's the gist i'm mike pasca not a great day for donald trump or maybe he likes it depends if you're talking about the factual the actual the fictional or the factional factually a new york judge held trump liable for a third of a billion dollars in a civil suit well one of his civil suits that is a fact that is the factual the actual okay will he really have to pay well, it seems like he can appeal and he can delay payment for a while. But all the experts I've heard from say that to actually further that appeal, he has to put that money in escrow and he can get the money, but he's got to sell a building or two or a whole lot of superhero NFT cards.
1: I'm doing my first official collection of Donald J. Trump digital trading cards or to use the technical term, nifties, nifties, I call them nifties because they're so neat. They feature incredible artwork pertaining to my life and my career. For example, when I was an astronaut (laughs) or me riding a big elephant. (laughs) Trump cards are each $99. Seems like a lot. Seems like a scam and in many
0: ways it is. But (laughs) on the upside, if this wipes him out, he'll be free to further insult Eugene Carroll, Eh, maybe he and Rudy Giuliani can rent a Gulfstream trailer and live on their Social Security. The fictional, which I mentioned, plays into the factional in that Trump's acolytes and fans and supporters will be aggrieved. And there is a case that this will help him. It furthers his victimization. If they could take him for $355 million, what can they do for you and your mere $55 million? Listen, I don't understand all this either, but I didn't buy Trump's playing cards and they sold out. Trump must be thinking at this point about his old patron slash colleague slash fellow friendo Tucker, Vladimir Putin. Now that guy knows how to be a kleptocrat. Trump's more of a kvechocrat. That's the factionalism at play. Yeah, Bad things can happen to him, but they become good things because he gets to complain about them. Putin doesn't play that game. Putin really does steal billions of dollars. He really spreads it around to his friends. He really is unaccountable. Trump isn't. And we just saw today that he really does viciously punish his enemies. Alexander Navalny dead by, if not Putin's hand, then the long arm of the Putin regime. And Trump's last comments, last public comments about Putin were to imply that he would give the man free reign over our allies if There is an issue of delinquency of payment. If we don't pay, are you still going to protect us? I said, absolutely not. They couldn't believe the answer. And everybody, you never saw more money pour in. The Secretary General Stoltenberg, I don't know if he is anymore, but he was my biggest fan. He said, all these presidents came in, they'd make a speech, they'd leave, and that was it. And they all owed money, and they wouldn't pay it. I came in, I made a speech, and I said, you got to pay up. They asked me that question, one of the presidents of a, big country stood up said well sir uh, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia will you protect us I said you didn't pay you're delinquent he said yes let's say that happened no I would not protect you in fact I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want you got to pay you got to pay your bills let's watch to see how much that standard applies to Trump himself we of course know the answer. He doesn't hold himself to any standard of conduct, which is why it's notable that legal institutions are beginning to impose those standards from the outside, those standards occasionally known as the law, from which there is no wriggling out of. On the show today, let's let's stick to the law. The Fannie Willis hearing, sorting through what we are hearing, but first. The country of Guatemala just pulled off what our guest calls a reverse January 6th, meaning they actually elected a president who stood up to the forces of illiberal elite suppression and democracy won. Kiko Torres calls the example of Guatemala the most successful pro-democracy movement of the 21st century, and he asks, so why has nobody heard of it? Well, listen to this next interview, and you will have. I'm sure you've heard the news, the terrible news, about January 6th. There was an attempt to overturn the election results. It went a lot further than it should. It's very dispiriting. Wouldn't it be great if there were some counterexamples, some signs of hope? We can't really get any from this hemisphere. Oh, wait, we can. The Brazilian election denialism was pretty effectively rebutted. And there's even a better example, a glaring example that was the reverse or what Kiko Toro, who joins me next, claims to be January 6th in reverse. You might not have heard about it, but that's for a lot of reasons. Guatemala doesn't make the news or the specifics of what happened in Guatemala doesn't quite fit into the left-right paradigm. Kiko Toro is a contributing editor at Persuasion, and he blogs at KikoToro.com, all largely about the climate. Kiko, welcome back to The Gist, this time as Kiko, not Francisco, which is how we identified you in the past. Thanks for that, Mike. So who won in Guatemala? What happened? I'll admit it. I didn't even know. And that's part of the indictment that you're creating.
1: Well, it's an amazing story. Guatemala had been one of the most corrupt countries in Central America, which is a tough league to compete in. For a long time, and Guatemalans were really, really sick of it. Yeah, yeah. The um, A league was- of
0: the A league of corruption. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no <laughs> the Premier League. Um, yeah.
1: But um, they had this system in place where this group of corrupt officials, that like Guatemalans call el Pacto de Corruptos, like the Pact of the Corrupt, controlled every institution of the state. So if anybody wanted to run. Against them, even though it was a democracy, they could just disqualify them for office. And this is what they had been doing for for some time. They tried to do it again ahead of elections last year, but they didn't disqualify everyone who might threaten them because there are some guys who are polling at like 0.7%, you know, within within the margin of error of nothing. Right. And And corrupt regimes
0: often want to have the appearance of an election. So you have to let someone run. Yeah.
1: Right. So they let this guy Bernardo Arevalo run because, well, he seemed completely harmless. He's a sociology professor who speaks French and English and Hebrew and like writes books. And this is not the kind of person who usually catches fire with Latin American electorates. So it's like, yeah, let him run. But then since they disqualified all the other reform candidates, Guatemalans quickly clustered around uh, Arevalo, who was not expecting to win, but one, he won the first, the first, well, he came second in the first round. He qualified for the runoff. Then the Guatemalan, um, the Pacto de Luptos, tried to run him off the road, try to disqualify him from the second round. And this provoked this huge kind of backlash on the streets. So they, they were sort of forced by protests and by U.S. embassy pressures to to allow him into the second round. And then, of course, he won in a landslide because they had, Given him the most valuable campaign aid you can give a Guatemalan, which is to be persecuted by the state. This establishes in voters' mind, oh, this guy is for real. If they're scared of him, he's for real. He won with 61% of the vote wow. in August. And even after that, they kept the, the the powers that be kept thinking, well, we can't really have this guy in office. So they kept trying to disqualify him. They tried to allege fraud against him, which was completely crazy. And, and then things got really interesting, Mike, because then Guatemala sort of exploded, but it didn't explode the way you might think. You know, Arevalo is an urban intellectual. He's a white dude. You might think that people in Guatemala City might, like, go and protest, but that, that's not quite how it started. All these indigenous groups in the west of Guatemala, these Maya uh, nations that had not really been inside his coalition, started to protest, and then it snowballed.
0: Right. So how, so to explain this, the, he wouldn't normally be seen as this, he'd be seen as an elite, in other words, and the indigenous people weren't, as you say, part of his coalition, um, but he was the candidate of the left or the moderate left. So what was going on was more reaction against the government and embracing an unlikely vassal or uh, an unlikely champion or tribune. Uh, on on the on the part of the indigenous people,
1: right? Uh, yeah, I think that's a very good way to put it. Um, it. It's interesting because there's always this sense, I think, when you talk to people in North America, this holdover from the 1980s of like the Marxist indigenous people of Central America, which is never true in the first place. But what's really interesting when you look at the indigenous protests that just rocked Guatemala and shut the country down for three weeks solid in October last year is that when you hear their speech, they're indigenous, but not indigenista. They're not indigenous. It's not an exclusive thing. It was a very open movement with different Maya nations. There are 21 separate Maya nations with 21 separate Maya languages in Guatemala, so it's quite complicated. But they they mostly mobilized, and they invited one another to share the stage, and they, they invited the, the, the Spanish-speaking people from the city also to join them. So it became this moment of, of real national unity. And at this point, well, a they force a the regime to allow Arevalo to be sworn in as president which happened on January 15th and at this point Arevalo has well a 80% approval ratings in Guatemala there's this huge consensus around him and b all this indigenous support which just hasn't seen been seen in Guatemala since the 1950s really.
0: right so what were the uh, mechanisms by which the elite the the previous holders of power tried to keep him out of office.
1: Yeah, it's 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 kind of a long story. The, there's an office in many Latin American countries called the Fiscalía General, which doesn't really have an equivalent in the U.S. It's like the Department of Justice, but only the part that makes prosecutions decisions. So okay. I, I call it the prosecution, the Prosecutor General. Right. The trend in Latin America has been to say, well, you know, presidents are so powerful in this region, they're too powerful if they also control prosecuting, prosecuting decisions. So the prosecutor general is not part of the government. He, he's not appointed by the president. He doesn't serve. Well, she, in this case, doesn't serve at the pleasure of the president. It's an extremely powerful um, position. Um, in this case, the sitting attorney general is this lady called Consuelo Pueblas, who was appointed by the Pacto de Coluptos, who is basically the, the the most visible part of the old regime, and who in some ways, the way the Guatemalan state is set up, is is a co-equal branch of government. There is no nothing that Arevalo can do against her. So all throughout last year, she kept bringing legal actions in front of judges that she controlled to try to run Arevalo off the road, and, and only mass protests and also a lot of diplomatic pressure from the U.S., Led the business sector, in fact, to go to their buddies in the Pacto Eucalyptus and say, "You know, we're just as worried about Arevalo as you are, but we can't have U.S. sanctions and we can't have the country up in flames. We're going to have to live with them."
0: Okay, yeah. So the U.S. sanctions were a significant reason why, uh, I guess, democracy prevailed in Guatemala.
1: Yeah, that's the other strange. Thing about this story is, I'm so used to stories of U.S. policy backfiring in Latin America or just not working right. Right. Uh, In this case, the U.S. had this situation
0: propping up someone who is in the U.S. interest but isn't necessarily an embodiment
1: of the full flowering of democracy. Well, which was the case in Guatemala in the 1950s and in the 1980s. I mean, we shouldn't leave this conversation without noting that between 1981 and 1983. There were at least 600 massacres perpetrated by the Guatemalan military, which was trained and equipped by U.S. taxpayer funds back then uh, because they were fighting uh, these also Maya uh, indigenous groups that were thought to be socialists. So, yeah, this for the U.S., there's a lot of redemption in this story they had the situation where they had the means and and the the opportunities you know just happened to to coincide here they're very smart about rallying other countries in the region and like the european union so it wasn't just them uh, approving sanctions against uh, consuelo Podlas, the the prosecutor general and other people in her clique it was the europeans too it was countries like colombia which are on the left which you never see lined up behind the us and the hemisphere chile also a left-wing government you see um yeah i i think the biden administration really did something that will stand the test of time in guatemala over the last six months
0: it was the intervention of the biden administration that did allow democracy to prevail, but also in your analysis, a reason why we in America don't know that the Biden administration had this big win, this big pro-democracy
1: win, this reversal of, you know, the events of January 6th, essentially. It's really weird. It's like, if the Biden administration does it, then it can't be left-wing
0: somehow, I guess is the way the discourse works. Well, that's in the United States. What about in Guatemala? Would the, the leftists in Guatemala probably are to the left of uh, all but the uh, most left people in the United States. Are they not championing the results of the uh, – or the intervention of the Biden administration? Are they loathe to give them
1: credit to? Well, it's actually really interesting. In Guatemala, U.S. intervention has been coded left, not just in the last six months, but sort of since 2006, which seems wrong because that was George W. Bush's term. But in 2006, corruption was already completely out of control in Guatemala. The Bush administration actually pressured for the creation of an international commission run by the U.N., To investigate, to help the Guatemalan uh, prosecutor general investigate corruption. And so from 2006 to 2017, you had this thing called CICIG, this International Commission with prosecutors from all around the Americas that was backstopping anti corruption investigations. And so already starting in 2006, but especially during the Obama administration, La Embajada, you know, the, the US Embassy, was seen as a bit of a lefty force in Guatemalan politics. Like Definitely very conservative politicians and conservative forces in Guatemalan society do not trust the U.S. embassy and haven't for a long time. So um, it's not the way we're used to thinking about it, but in, in Guatemala, that's, that's a bit how the U.S. has been seen since then.
0: Yeah, it's probably because the right in Guatemala is so much further to the right than oh, yeah. the right in
1: America would be considered.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah
1: there, there, there's been a, a bit of, a, there's been a, a tiny bit of rapprochement between some figures in the far right of the Republican Party and the Pacto de Collectos, but not too much because they're impresentables, who say in Spanish, you wouldn't want to. Introduce him to your mother at (laughs) Thanksgiving. Wait, what does it mean? What's the exact translation? Impresentable is unpresentable. Like you wouldn't Ah, want to introduce him to someone.
0: (laughs) There are many more questions to ask, but I got two more big ones. One is why we don't know about this. Uh, My analysis would be we don't know. We in America uh, don't know or care 90% of what happens in Central America other than is there crime? Are they sending, is there drugs? Are they sending migrants? All right. So we're not going to pay that much attention to Guatemala no matter what. But why else is it that the United States isn't caring? Because there is not an easy narrative of good guy or bad guy, or is it more that the left in Guatemala itself isn't trying to make a big deal about this. The right in Guatemala itself isn't trying to make a big deal about this. This was both an uh, acceptable compromise to each, but not one they are desperate to let the world know about it. Or is it more about U.S. domestic considerations why we don't know more about this?
1: It's it's really hard to tell. Um, my sense is that good news stories just don't play well in general. Uh we want, you know, we want news to, news to be bad. Um, but that creates a big blind spot for people because when we, you do exceptionally have a democratic fight back, when you have like an actual like movement on the streets with indigenous people lined up behind business interests lined up behind the US embassy, lined up, well, I shouldn't say behind, but alongside when you have this this like very broad coalition, it's exciting. It doesn't fit in our preconceived notions. But also, there's no catastrophe. It just It's just good news, and good news doesn't get covered.
0: Yeah, and I would also say that uh, for an American, okay, there's good news in Guatemala. How does it affect me? There's still 2 million migrants at the border, and one country that had a recent democratic victory is not turning things around yeah. in a way that you know will be felt in the lives of most Americans.
1: Well, I mean, I am certain that there will be thousands or tens of thousands of Guatemalans who would have made the trek to the U.S. border if Guatemala had stayed on the trajectory that it was, that now it won't. So, so you would think that uh, this would be welcome news. Anytime that a source country for migration starts uh, starts to reform and starts to get on the demand and starts to to become the kind of place where you might want to bring up your children, that's going to decrease migration p- pressures. Uh, we need a lot more Guatemalas, not just in Latin America, but all around the world in places where democracy is, is endangered. We need these kinds of uh, innovative, like unexpected uh, coalitions that, that can be effective and holding them up because or or, or not paying attention to them just because they don't, meet with our preconceived notions of what the good guy should look like is is kind of a bummer.
0: So here's my last big question. The first huge challenge that Bernardo Aravallo overcame was getting elected. The second huge one was having the results of that election honored, but that's not where the challenges end. That's pretty much where they, they begin. What are his challenges now as president?
1: Well, right now, it's ironic because there had been this big anti-corruption push in 2006 to 2017. Part of that involved making the Office of Prosecutor, Prosecutor General extremely powerful and basically untouchable for the president or for anyone else. The president... Congre- Nobody can get rid of Consuelo Puebla, this very corrupt prosecutor general. She has extreme power. She's basically a co-equal branch of government. Her term runs through 2006. So when I went to Guatemala just a few weeks ago, there was this sense in the air that Arevalo is sort of in office, but not yet in power in a way, or that the, the way one congresswoman put it to me is that this government has a loaded gun pointed at its head. Um, there's a lot of concern that uh, the prosecutors are going to start putting like cabinet secretaries in jail, which she can easily do. So this will be this will take a lot of diplomacy from the U.S. from Arevalo, from everyone involved to to keep um, this conf- confrontation from getting out of hand. But if they can hang on, just the fact that he's living with the institutions that he inherited instead of doing what Latin American strongmen always do, which is try to change the institution to mold them to their program, that's already hugely positive news for Guatemala because it shows institutions have a stickiness there that democracies need for, for to work at all. So I think that's kind of good news and bad news. But yeah, that's definitely the biggest problem economically you might not think so but Guatemala is actually relatively stable there's never been hyperinflation there it helps that there's 1.7 million Guatemalans living in the u.s sending remittances every month so the country is actually um growing it's kind more. of peg, it's kind of pegged to the dollar de facto yeah yeah but it's not just that it's almost like having an oil industry except the the people in power can't steal all the oil money because it goes directly into people's pockets because relatives send them to them. So that so it, that's really interesting the way remittances from Guatemalans abroad has to helped to stabilize the economy. Um, now with 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 all of this uh, noise about French shoring and near shoring and the troubles with China, um, well right right before uh, we started this conversation, I was watching an, uh, an event at the U.S. Embassy in Guatemala City where the Biden administration is really trying to push investment into Guatemala. They understand that this will be needed to make the government more uh, more stable too. Um, yeah, they, they, they really have a big opportunity now to, to change trajectories. And I think it's hugely exciting and they deserve our admiration and support and our willingness to learn because the way they've built coalitions across ethnic lines is amazing. Kiko Toro is a contributing editor at Persuasion and he also
0: blogs at Kiko, quicotor often about environmental issues. Thanks so much, Kiko.
1: <laughs> we'll talk about that next time.
0: And now the spiel. Today in an Atlanta courtroom, the hearing into improprieties between the district attorney, her prosecutor, and former romantic partner continued without actually hearing from the prosecutor or the romantic partner. Maybe that's okay, as after a dish of intensely spicy food, it's advised to sample a sorbet. Here's a written description of Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis's testimony in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The DA's two hours of testimony on Thursday afternoon quickly became a national spectacle as cable networks carried her defiant, often cutting remarks live. The DA began her testimony guns blazing against defense attorney Ashley Merchant, who has led the push to disqualify Willis from her election interference case and took every opportunity to criticize her. All right. That's a written word. Here is the phrasing the AJC used in their podcast. And Fonnie Willis just came in hot. Um, She was ready to tear into Ashley Merchant. Yeah. Willis did not appreciate the implications of Trump's defense team and screwed her courage to the sticking place to tell them off. I object to you getting records. You've been intrusive into people's personal lives. You're confused. You think I'm on trial. These people are on trial for trying to steal an election in 2020. I'm not on trial, no matter how hard you try to put me on trial. She further explained, as concerns, her relationship with Nathan Wade that she didn't need a man it's interesting that we're here about this money mr wade is used to women that uh as he told me one time the only thing a woman can do for him is make him a
1: sandwich we would have brutal arguments about the fact that i am your equal i don't need anything from a man a man is not a plan a man is a
0: companion and so there was tension always in our relationship which is why i was give him his money back i don't need anybody to foot
1: my bills off only man who's ever footed my bills completely is my daddy.
0: A man may or may not be a plan, but I do have to say that Fannie Lewis, who testified she doesn't go on that many dates anymore, currently does not have the former, but certainly had the latter, i.e. she came in with a strategy. There are undeniable amounts or bits of truth to the Trump team's allegations. Willis and Wade were, were having a romantic relationship while he was being paid by her office to prosecute Trump and other co-conspirators. And so, well, that so, it's into this gap that Willis did provide some factual detail, like explaining that she had lots of cash because her daddy, that's how she described her father, who testified today, her daddy told her to keep cash around. But mostly what she did was to cut a sympathetic figure. And this is good strategy. Like Trump, she has to be concerned with legalisms, and she keeps an eye on legal liability, but she also knows the jurors are probably out there watching. And if she portrays herself as a strong woman, unfairly picked on, she advances the general cause of getting convictions. MSNBC clearly bought the performance. Here was analyst Lisa Rubin. The testimony, on the whole, was calmer than I expected it to be when she first walked in.
1: You were worried. But also incredibly detailed. And I thought her portrayal of why it is that she pays for things in cash and has lots of cash on hand was very compelling. Basically...
0: my problem, the problem I had, is that through all the you go girling and no they didn't ding, but also all the outrage from the usual conspiratorial pro Trump commentators online who heard, were sure they heard, admissions of felonies in every Willis utterance, I couldn't really get a good sense of which side was making the better legal case. The standards of what they were actually arguing about were so many miles past past my grasp at times, as people just reveled in the statements or gaped at the performances. Online, a few, on Twitter, a few Atlanta-based defense lawyers who I follow seem to think that Willis definitely didn't doom herself with her performance, but they were far less enamored than the coverage I watched on MSNBC. Of course, Atlanta-based defense lawyers Their rival is the district attorney. At times, the news network seemed like they were watching Jennifer Hudson sing the Showstopper from Showgirls. The clips were all entertaining. You can't look away. But what did they add up to? Mary Trump, and here you will hear from Norm Eisen on CNN, they all just said that everything we heard was merely a frivolous legal case against a lioness, Fonnie Willis. She hit the ball out of the park on that. She was credible, I believed her, and uh, there's no longer any grounds that I can see, possible even, for disqualification here. All right, I haven't heard that compelling a counter argument. That doesn't mean it's out there, it just means that I'm not hearing it. I am suspicious when the only analysts on record are deeply committed Trump antagonists who desperately and publicly want Willis's Rico case to succeed. Okay, so let's say Fonnie Willis has a good explanation for her actions. I suppose that funneling cash payments to her paramour, who a witness says she took up with years prior to her sworn testimony, I suppose this could all be overcome, or you can ask, and so what? That might very well be fair. And therefore, I guess I conclude that a man isn't a plan, but a viral clip of Make you best equipped to bring a monumental case with stakes this high. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara produces The Gist, Joel Patterson's the senior producer. They are the Quaint Mallards. They will be playing The Cutting Room March 14th. Michelle Pesca is the chief. Booker of Peachfish Productions and she announces that the date at the cutting room of the Quaint Mallards has been cancelled. To advertise go to advertisecast.com slash the gist and thanks for listening.